host of the CSAFE podcast, and I've got another great guest uh, on today. I've got Wanda Lankiewicz, and she is the founder and CEO of Chinook Systems. And we're going to get to that. Obviously, we'll end up where, where, what she's doing today. But she joins me today. She's uh, a great uh, example of uh, uh, another set of career path choices. Uh, she is a speaker. She's an entrepreneur, obviously. But she's also got a creative side, painter, musician, a horse enthusiast, uh, mechanical-minded, engineer by uh, by formative training or by, by education training, and uh, a cook, and just a well-rounded individual bringing a whole lot of different perspective and experience to what she's doing today. Uh, Wanda, I'd like to welcome you to the CSA podcast. Thank you so much, Derek. I am very excited to join you today. All right. Well, let's let's uh, unpeel the onion layers of the the Wanda story. Um, I know that uh, you know because you and I have talked, and and uh, you know I've got a little bit of sense of some of these things. You, uh, I know you know you grew up in Canada. Talk about you know, sort of where you grew up and and uh, your your sort of first. I know that the nature of the kind of work you you quote unquote uh, started doing, which you, I love your comment that you made about sort of like later being able to see what kind of work it was. Um, you know, where'd you grow up and what were you what were what was the environment you were in? Yeah, well, I grew up in a small town in Alberta, in Canada. Um, I'm from Viking, and so if any out there as hockey fans I'm from the home of the Sutters um, and of which they are they are my neighbors um, and I grew up in a farming community a mixed farm we had both grain and cattle and so uh, we were like everybody else in the area and uh, it was it was a really great environment to to grow up in and, and uh, I what was that comment you you had shared with me around uh, uh, wanting to to get out and do some work, and your dad saying, you know, we got plenty of work right here. Your perspective on that later? Yeah, that was that was always the thing. I always wanted to get out and get a job. Oh, I want to get a job. And my dad used to say to me, "There's enough work for you here on the farm. You don't need to go out and get a job." <laughs> yeah, I I grew up in farm country uh, in the Midwest, and um, I I had enough exposure to it. We didn't have our own farm, but we backed up to our property backed up to one, and I had friends who were part of uh, corn and hog farming and it's it work it's a lot of work so I yeah I yeah that. and interestingly too it wasn't until I got into my own business that you know when you when you grow up on a farm it's really a way of life and you don't really think much about it because you know your family doesn't get up and go to a job every day and come home every day and so you don't really think much about it but when I started my own business I was reflecting on on the business of farming. And I thought, wow, you know, our business that we're in, we, we typically have a lot of control over our businesses. We have control over who we hire, we have our control over our clients, et cetera. But when you look at farming and you think that, you know, you are, you're literally putting your life in the hands of mother nature on a daily basis. And you think, wow, mother nature is not in your control. And, um, and so you reflect on that. And then as I, you know, I, I learned more about how we operated. I thought, wow, you know, it's really, it's really incredible I, that, that farmers don't get enough credit, I think, for, for what they do and, and the fact that they, you know, put food on everybody's tables, <laughs> you, know, in, yeah. at, you know, along with it. And so, we take so, yeah. it, you know, we, society can take for granted. So we're, we're, we're some of that, you know, where does all this stuff come from? We're food. <laughs> Yeah. Somebody's doing the hard work uh, on the front end of that process. Do you remember where technology first intersects uh, with your life? Yeah, I well, when I was taking mechanical engineering, we we had pretty much the the typical classes with hydraulics and mechanics and machine shop and whatnot. And so, but it was all manual. And when I when I left, I uh, my first job related to technology was with a machine tool dealer. And uh, I started my position getting on a plane and flying to Vancouver for for a trade show. And um, the whole team was there and they were at the trade show, they were making parts. And when when I got there and you know hit cycle start for the first time on one of those computer numerically controlled machines, I I fell in love. I just uh, you know, I, I just thought it was so fascinating how you could actually take a drawing, convert that drawing into, you know, into a language of code that would then 
produce a part. It was just fascinating to me. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so you leave high school and you go to the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology and you get a mechanical engineering degree. Um, I know you do go back and get some more, you know, more schooling later. We'll talk about that. But you go out and what do you do first after that? I left college and then I went to work for the provincial government, um, the Alberta Transportation and Utilities. And I was doing materials testing on the highways. So uh, my job was in the lab. I was working at I was working at asphalt plants and gravel pits and doing testing for for materials and so um, it would be like composition testing and, and also field testing so I'd be out on the road and I'd be doing temperature testing of you know the temperature of the asphalt coming off the trucks and core samples in the mornings and that kind of thing so yeah it was a really really great combination of both both lab work and testing and and field work already. So I did that was that was my first job. It was uh, I spent about eight months doing that. It doesn't sound like there were a bunch of sensors on all those endpoints and you sat in the air conditioned office and all the data came back to you in one place, does it? <laughs> no, exactly right. There were no sensors at that point in time. It was all manual. <laughs> Oh, I love it for you know, which is a foreshadowing to where we'll end up talking at the end of this about what you're doing today. And there are sensors in lots of places and <laughs> data coming from different sources. So, um, okay, cool. Uh, that that is, I think, always sort of important. I always joke that you know the backstory of, of cybersecurity people sort of like the superhero backstories. You know, cybersecurity people are modern day superheroes. So um, you're you're I know also just growing up on the farm and things that, that uh, we've talked about. You know, operating machinery and the mechanical nature of things which is interesting to what you do today with building systems that you start, mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you, you start right away. As soon as your earliest memories is that sort of, those sorts of things are part of it. And then that's these first jobs you're talking about equipment, asphalt machines, all these sorts of things. So that, that part of it uh, is not just your, your sort of educational background, but your practical background was about equipment. Yeah, it was really actually quite interesting because when I started college, um, and we were doing some, you know, some of the foundational things of mechanics. And, and I remember that I was, I was looking around the room and, and I knew a lot of the fun, the fundamentals like already before I even got there. And, and I looked around and, you know, some of the guys in the class, they were, you know, they were, you know, city folk, I guess. And uh, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. You know, I, I never thought that I would come in and actually know more than some of the people in the class. Right. And I just, because it was just obviously something that we did right from right from day one. Seven years of the government work and your entrepreneur path begins and you've never left it. But there's a company before Chinook. Yeah. So when I was with Public Works, it was after after I did uh, some time in the oil and gas sector. I would I worked for a machine tool company and so it was my job there was really that was where I, I kind of first got into digital controls. It was really interesting because, you know, the first computers with the floppy disks and also, you know, all of our all of our programs were up, uploaded through 8-bit punched tape. And so that's uh, that's how far I go back. <laughs> and I traveled all over the country doing that work. And it was really great because it's still what I do today from the standpoint of like kind of end to end delivery of services. And so a machine would get sold and I would show up to do the install. So I would, I would level it, I would calibrate it, I would get everything up and running. And then before I actually got to the site, I would ask the company to provide to me um, a part that they were going to that they were going to machine and so I really wanted them to be up and running by the time I left so they would send me their drawing I would I would go ahead of time and I would create the program and the and the step-by-step -step procedures and then I would tell them all the tooling that they needed and everything that I needed for stock for them to get started and I would show up um, install the machine and then I would take their guys and train them and by the time I left, um, they were up and running and making parts. And so, so it was always really, um, really satisfying to me to be able to walk in and a few days later walk out and they were already making money. 
and it was just it was a really you know really satisfying experience and it's then i went to concrete and, it's super concrete and measurable and not everything we do is that short-term yeah. measurable that was like instant gratification i was like we did this and it worked and i made it happen and there you go yeah yeah and i think that it's a it's really part of who i am i like to i like to actually you know see a see a concrete output <laughs> of of what what i do so yeah so which is interesting in a lot of cybersecurity you can't see the if the job is done well you can't see an end result because it's the absence of a result you know which is tough it's not quite <laughs> as concrete in that in that in that way yeah very true very true so when yeah. i went to Northern canada i uh that was where i got involved in mechanical design and building commissioning and so i started building commissioning in 1991 and of course that is all about the validation of control systems and so uh so did some design was involved in commissioning and then i was also their representative regional representative for our facility maintenance program and that was kind of where i started my love of databases we had our own maintenance management database um, in the government of Canada, and I was in charge of the database. And so I, um, I had five district offices with over 200 buildings. I was in charge of standardizing the program across the region and also um, maintaining the software application. And so that was, that was really where the, you know, the engineering and the, and the database management and systems kind of all came together for me at the government of Canada. You, you've got your building chops. I got to admit, I, I've known you for some years, but I didn't realize just how far back buildings and their systems went for you. Oh, yeah. 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 So why started it? You know, I, I think it's, you know, let me frame this, uh, you know, starting your own company, the first company, and then obviously we'll, we'll leap to the, the one that's still going. You know, it's got a long history. There's yeah. people have ideas. They want to start companies uh, and they're fearful or they're not sure. You know, what was the catalyst for you? What caused you to do it? Um, and then, you know, uh, is there anything you, you would have done, you know, you would have done differently or advice you'd give to somebody who's thinking about it now? I was kind of a chicken, I have to admit. Um, we, when the government of Canada decided that they were going to outsource all of their architectural and engineering services, they offered severance packages to anyone who wanted to leave. And at that time, it was a really difficult decision for me because they were getting ready to put me into an executive management training program. And so it was, uh, I had to make the decision as to whether I was gonna continue with the government of Canada and go into leadership or whether I was gonna leave. And so it was, it was a really difficult decision. Um, I ended up being in a meeting with, um, with some of the leadership who, who they're like, oh Wanda, we really want you to stay. And I said to them, I was a, and I wasn't really that old either. I can't sometimes believe what I said to people, but uh, <laughs> I said to them, um, I said, well, if you're willing to give me as much money to stay as you are to give me to leave, then I'll consider it. <laughs> so anyway, they said, no, we can't do that. And I said, well, then neither can I. And so I decided to leave the government. And so with the severance package and the retraining um, program, I left. So that kind of launched the next phase for me. And you, would, I, I should back up, you, you did, you know, we have people who have, you know, leaders, all these interviews I've been doing, most have an undergraduate degree, many have a graduate degree, a few, no degree at all. You know, there's some people clearly know, they're soup, they know what they're talking about today, 20 years later, but they didn't happen to have a degree. They maybe came through the military or somewhere else. You're mm -hmm. in the group that has a graduate degree and you did that while you were still doing government. You went back and got computer systems, technology uh, focused master. Yeah, and so I had that love for databases. And while I was while I was with the government, I was also doing new construction work. There was nothing out there at the time to manage all of the deliverables of construction. And then there was really nothing that would transition all of the commissioning information that we were doing into the facility maintenance program. And I thought, well, as I was working on my last project, which was the new RCMP K Division headquarters building in Edmonton, I, I just started gathering all of this information and I started putting it in a database 
and Nate was actually right across the street from the building. And so I'd be going back and forth from work to school and work to school and, you know, training and working and, you know, just building organically, you know, this database just because I couldn't stand not having something to manage all of my information in. And then um, the mother of invention, they say there it was. Exactly. There it was. And now, of course, industry-wide, it's it's very common practice. And there's a lot of systems out there that do that. But at the time that I I was managing projects, there really there really wasn't anything out there. So I started building it. I started building the commissioning database. And actually it was it was funny because we talk about all the integrations of software applications now and how we push and pull information. I did the first transition of equipment data from design and construction commissioning to a maintenance management system through an ODBC database link, you know, in 1998, (laughs) you know, so some of my, there's a lot of frustration with the industry for me because, um, you know, we're very, very slow to adopt. And, you know, some of these things that we were doing so long ago, um, really haven't even become a standard practice, which is which is frustrating. But I, I do believe that it's changing. So then let's jump back to, um, uh, you know, this timeline of starting your first company. So you took the service package and you started um, in Tekka. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a sort of a four year run. And then you start Chinook, which has been running now for 20 years. So I'm sort of curious of the, the the startup story of the first company and what led to the second, and you moved somewhere in there to the United States. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, so the first company I started after I, I left the government, and um, I was fortunate that I got a small severance package. And so, um, like I said before, I was kind of a chicken, and so um, a little bit on the conservative side. And so I decided that I could start my own company and um, I basically gave myself a year to fail. And so I thought, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll, I'll put a year into it. And if I can't make it happen, then I'll just go and get another job. So that was, that was really how it started. And, um, and I, had got, um, I had always got calls back from the machine tool industry because I was local and people knew that I did service. And so I would... I had quite a, you know, a network of people and I would get calls all the time. Oh, can you come fix my machine? Can you come fix my machine? And so I thought, well, I have a little bit of that business too, so I can go and do that. But what was really the turning point for me was that was late 1998 and Y2K hit in 1999. So that was really kind of the launch of yeah, of my next story. Yeah, if I remember right, um, you you put some you logged some miles due to Y2K. <laughs> I sure did. Yeah. So um, so I was one of those people who left the government and then went contracted back to them, um, and it just happened to be in 1999 when um, we all thought the world was coming to an end as a result of Y2K. Yeah. And so I I spent a lot of time uh, flying around the country testing time clocks. And um, it was everything from building control systems to security systems to access control, you know, anything that had a time clock in it. And then um, Government Canada had a master database of all of the control systems, inclusive of the model numbers of them and all of the um, firmware revisions and whatnot. And so basically I would go out and do an inventory, gather the information, um, determine if there was a time clock, and then I would test it to make sure that it either failed over correctly uh, or rolled over correctly, I should say, not failed over, or if it failed. And then also I would go and uh, re- update the database, the national database, and I would also look look up the equipment to determine if it was compliant or not. Does this sound familiar to what we're doing right now? I mean, it just there's there's so much of a parallel of what went on um, during Y2K in the controls industry to kind of this next generation of what we're dealing with now with cyber. Yeah, you, you just used cybersecurity for the first time in this conversation. Is that when it intersects sort of with your path, resiliency, reliability, all those themes? Is that is Y2K what kind of inserts that into your career path? 
Yeah, because I was um, I was primarily focused on a lot of um, mission critical mi uh, military facilities, and so those were like if your security system goes down, then your hospital or your facility, you know, could be open to intrusion, right? So. So it was more, uh, like you said, a resiliency and a security standpoint, you know, versus versus cyber. But from a controls point of view, it was also from um, uh, maintaining operations. So we didn't want, obviously, our control systems to go down as a result of a time clock not turning yeah. over. So yeah, from a from an operation standpoint and a resiliency standpoint, it definitely has a lot of parallels. So then, um, what's the transition from Enteca to Chinook? But it was kind of an interesting, uh, interesting transition. I was, I was actually in the middle of one of my classes. I was just finishing up computer systems technology, and uh, and I was in one of my classes, and I got a phone call. And uh, I remember going out into the hallway in the building and taking the call. And it was a gentleman who we had worked with, who worked with a, an engineering company in Edmonton who did work with us and then had moved to Florida and uh, worked for a Florida company and um, was contracted on the Atlas V program with Lockheed Martin to build Launch Complex 41. And it was uh, Lockheed Martin's uh, Atlas V program. It was the first heavy lift launch vehicle. And he, uh, there, was, <laughs> there was a need for some additional support on on the project and he needed um, somebody electrical and somebody mechanical and so it was uh, it was initially a six-month contract and so he he called me and asked me if I was interested and I'm guessing it's sort of like a version of my story I moved my family to Atlanta for a couple of years uh, from California it's now been eight and I don't think we're going back yeah it was very much the same it was it was a funny conversation um, he described the work to me, and he said, "Are you interested?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "When?" I said, uh, "When? When would you like me there?" And he said, "Well, don't you have to talk to your husband?" I said, "No, <laughs> no, I don't." I said, "I'm sure he'll be just fine with moving to Florida." <laughs> so, so yeah, that was how we. That was how. That was the first step, and it was initially a six-month contract, and. Um, it was a it was a really big construction project, but it had it had got a little bit messy along the way um, with design and construction, and the contractor had got on board, and then they realized that they didn't quite have a complete design, and so they were going into redesign, and it kind of they they kind of lost control of it a little bit. And they needed somebody to help them rebuild a conformed set of contract documents, and so so that's what I went down there to do. And so, are you doing this as Enteca or or Chinook? Yes, as Enteca. And so um, so I was able because of my background, I was able to qualify for a scientific and technical visa, and so the company sponsored me to come to Florida on a technical visa, and. Um, and so I went down with my Canadian company um, initially, and then uh, six months turned into two years, um, turned into me supporting the design build contractor out in the field. And so I was there on a daily basis, um, taking care of all of their project controls, all of their drawings, facilitating the quality control and commissioning activities, and did that for, for two years two years after and so I got I got to Florida initially in 2000 and um, worked out at Cape Canaveral um, until 2002 when the inaugural launch was yeah. so then you, you, you must have somewhere in there you're like this is gonna we're gonna stay longer I'm gonna form a US you know company um, I'm sort of curious to that yeah so so what happened was while i was working for the design build contractor the rfp for the pentagon renovation came out and it was really exciting for me i got a hold of this rfp and and when i was with the government of canada i was on a committee where we were trying to define the language for our design build rfps and 
we were working at it and we were trying to get there and we were trying to build the language to go from design bid build to design build projects. I got a hold of the RFP for the Pentagon and I read it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly where we were trying to get to. Uh, and so I was really excited about it. And so the contractor asked me if I would help them write some of the areas of response to the RFP, of which I did. And they won the contract. Obviously, it wasn't because of me. I had a little piece of the response, but obviously not the lion's share. And so when they won the contract, then they asked me to come to the Pentagon to help launch the launch the renovation project. And I'm trying to recall a conversation you and I had in DC years ago at a, at a CSA event. Are you still involved with, with Pentagon work? Yes, yes, I am. I current have, this whole time? Yeah, yeah, this whole time I've had Yes, I've um, I've had a a relation a co constant consistent relationship with the Pentagon since that time. Yeah, so so it was at that time when I when we got that contract that I had to hire staff and so to take to the Pentagon to launch the program. And so that was when I incorporated Chinook. So. I incorporated the U.S. company so that I could hire staff and take them to the Pentagon contract. I got it. That's oh, it's sort of a fork in the road. So we'll form a company with an idea, and we're going to go try to find the customers. Other people are like, I, I've got a thing to do. I need to form an entity to go do it. And that was that was the path you took. Yeah, it was the path, and it was, but it was quite interesting because you know I was in this period of transition um, from from Canada to the U.S. and you know, we determined that we loved it here and we wanted to be here. And so we were we were in the process of going through immigration. And and I'm telling you, that was, um, you know, it, it was a very long process and took a, a lot of time and a lot of dollars. But it was it was obviously very well worth it. So I I went through a period of time where I was kind of, uh, it was it was a little uncomfortable because I was like without country, where, you know, I really wasn't part of Canada anymore, but I wasn't officially part of the U.S. either. And I, I had a company, I had people, I was committed, but I was in limbo land. And it was, it was a really uncomfortable period of time, you know, when you feel like you, you really are without country. So... Well, that's a good segue to one of my questions I like to ask. Would you pick out of this next period, you know, the the, the 20 years now um, with Chinook, any, you know, a particular challenge and how you sort of how you overcame it? I think that's sort of sometimes inspirational for our listeners, too, who have their own challenges, but they see inspiration in how, how you circumvented something. And there you're talking about sort of the personal dimension of it between between two countries, if it were. But I'm sure there were also some business challenges in there as well. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And I still had my Canadian company um, because for for purposes of where we were, I still had to work for the Canadian company. I had the U.S. company. And so so it was it was the weirdest period of time where way too many sets of lawyers and accountants. <laughs> so, you know, you have. You have a U.S. lawyer and a U.S. accountant. You have a Canadian lawyer and a Canadian accountant. And then you have a cross-border accountant. And so it was just, it was a crazy period of time, just making sure that we kept all of that, you know, straight and that we were doing everything the right way. So so that was that was definitely a challenge. And then initially with the Pentagon renovation, obviously it was a huge program. And, and I was I was invited to, set up really all of the controls. So all the project controls, um, the decommissioning program, because of course it was an operating building, had to be decommissioned um, first before we started anything. So there was the decommissioning program, the quality control program, the commissioning program and project controls. And so I was um, kind of at the ground level setting all of that up with a, um, with a huge design build multi-phased project that, you know, each phase was divided into short interval um, project schedules. And so it was, you know, it was really getting that whole machine in motion, right, for 
for the renovation of the Pentagon. And I, you know, having the statistics at the top of your head, I know it's a huge building. I've been there, you know, years ago when I was in the military. It's enormous. It's bigger than I thought. It's a huge mm-hmm. building, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. The Pentagon, Pentagon proper, uh, you know, it's a, it's close to six million square feet, and yeah. with the Pentagon and the plant and, um, and everything that goes with yeah. that, and then. And then after after BRAC, of course, um, the Mark Center was built with with the base realignment, and so there's another couple million square feet there. And so we definitely have we have a big big job to do to support support the Pentagon on a daily basis. Well, let's talk about cybersecurity because at some point it I know that it it, it intersects all this, and obviously you come from there's it, always this thing that people that are in in various leadership positions in the industry, where do they come from? And there's engineering backgrounds and there's IT backgrounds and there's a few other kinds of backgrounds as well, but it's most are either engineering or IT and they end up sort of in this cybersecurity for OT hybrid unicorn like people that have dis- multidisciplinary backgrounds. You certainly come in through engineering. Uh, we talked about earlier about sort of the, the idea with Y2K is sort of resiliency and security, not cybersecurity, but security being uh, certainly deeply imprinted on you. When does cybersecurity intersect with Chinook and all these sorts of systems that you're, you know, that you're looking at and, and, and building new versions of that at some point there's more connectedness, right? And more sensors and all this is starting to come into that equipment. Yes, very much so. So we started looking at cyber security um, back in, back in 20, late 2014, early 2015. And so I was looking at, you know, it was starting to come up and I was looking for, who do, who do I go to? Who, who do I engage to really kind of get us get us some information, find out where the industry is going, find out where DOD is going with respect to cybersecurity? And one of your, well, a couple of your other fellows were very instrumental in that. So I had, I had worked with uh, Dr. Mike Chipley um, before on NIB's work. And so National Institute of Building Sciences. And I also had done some work with him um, through the whole building design guide. And I had set up at one point in time um, for that team uh, a tour of the Pentagon. And Mike was on that tour of the Pentagon. And um, and we had seen each other at other conferences. And so I was like poking around and I saw that Mike was doing training, um, overview training for cyber. And so I called him and said, hey, Mike, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out what this cyber world looks like. Um, can you come over and, and give us a hand? And it wasn't only for cybersecurity for controls, but it was also when cybersecurity started becoming, you know, introduced into DOD contracts and becoming a requirement for businesses to be paying attention to cybersecurity corporately also. So in our industry, we have, you know, both of those challenges. We have, we have to make sure we're compliant on the business side and it's also part of the services that we provide. So that was the introduction to cyber. So today I'm assuming, is there, are there any projects that cybersecurity is not an element of? For us, no. Um, cybersecurity touches every project that we do now um, yeah. because we, we've built it into our workflow. So we we don't look at a project without without actually we we can't not see cybersecurity yeah. <laughs> on any of our jobs now. Yeah, yeah, and and the, the nature of of buildings now. I mean, they are smart to use the term right. There, nobody's building either retrofitting old. You know, if they're retrofitting something, that putting some new systems in, or they're certainly if it's a greenfield new building, it's all it's all interconnected now, right? So that that the nature of a building today. Is a is a is a interconnected you know I don't know how many endpoints there are but there's a ton right yeah yeah very much so and the biggest challenge in new construction there's two challenges so new construction has its own challenges and and existing buildings have their own challenges so so when we look at new construction uh, a lot of what has transpired over over the years for design when we went from design bid build to design build you know, designers used to fully design control systems. And then as as time went on and design build became very much prevalent, a lot of the design aspects and network design was flowed down to a controls contractor. 
a lot of it, there wasn't a lot of visibility um, into how the controls networks were really designed and how they were pulled together. And so now with the, with the RMF process and the UFGS specs for cyber, one of the things that, um, that it has done, which I feel has been really good for our industry, is a lot of that network design and hardware, software, inventory lists, et cetera, has been pulled back to being a deliverable of the design phase of a project. And so, so with that being pulled back to the earlier stages of design, we're having more visibility into it again, and we can actually influence it. Whereas before the Div 25 specs were, were put in place for cyber, a lot of that was not uncovered until you're actually on site or you're seeing submittals and shop drawings and network diagrams, et cetera. And so, so the nice part of it is that it has pulled a lot of the things that impact cyber to the left in, in a new construction project. But existing building has its own, own challenges too. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So when you, when you were looking at, uh, at this, you know, some some years ago, I don't know if you said 2005 or it was an emerging, you know, I mean, it's still emerging, I suppose, but it's going to be more and more integrated. Um, any challenges in sort of embracing, especially for those entrepreneurs out there or, or, or people who are thinking about being one, you know, embracing something you know, sort of ahead of uh, ahead of market maturity? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of the, it's the second time that I've been been a little bit ahead of the ahead of the market. Um, when I was first developing technology for commissioning, I remember going to building commissioning conferences and taking my software with me and, and doing presentations. And they would literally have to bribe people to come to my sessions because people just couldn't get their head around, you know, database management of the commissioning process. Yeah. And I remember having nightmares before I would go and do presentations thinking, oh no, no one's gonna show up to my presentation. And now here we are today. I mean, those those rooms with um, commissioning technology and database management technology—they're overflowing. You know, they can't people there can't get enough people in these rooms. And so, so um, it was one of those scenarios where I was I was a little bit you know early to market. And I recalled the first presentation that I did on cyber. One of my um, partners from the industry, a company out of California that also had licensed our software, came up to me after the presentation. He's like, Wanda, you're doing it again. He said, you know, you were talking about commissioning technology when nobody else was really thinking about it. And now here you are with cyber and bringing cyber to the table when nobody is really, really thinking about it. And so, so I really tried to start being an advocate for the industry and everything that I did just to just to initially bring awareness. But, you know, when you get into an emerging market with no policies, no procedures, no guidelines, no roadmaps, you know, you have to you have to be pretty comfortable in your I guess your your stand and and your I guess vision of where the market is going to jump into an emerging market like that with you know that really that really doesn't have any really hasn't settled out yet right still yeah. hasn't settled out. yeah so uh, any advice for people that are earlier in their career or perhaps now entering this field that you you would give uh, based on your your years of experience. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is that our industry is really huge and it's so widespread. Um, the thing that I love most about it is that when you're involved in buildings, you get to understand what the people do in their buildings and their missions and what they're trying to accomplish. And you realize that the, the buildings are there in order to facilitate their success and their missions. And so so it's a it's a big wide area that people can get into and when it comes to controls and to various different types of controls you know you can go down a mechanical path you can go down an electrical path you can do building security you can do access control you can do lighting controls i mean there, anything that you can think of that helps a building run can be a career and I don't know if a lot of people just 
recognize that getting into our industry, there's there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of places to move laterally. But we're also not an industry where you can do something once, learn it, and be an expert of it. It takes people years and years and decades to become you know, true subject matter experts in, in our industry. And, and a lot of it because the technology keeps changing, you have to keep up with the technology. And there's just so, so much that goes on into making buildings work. And so I think that the biggest thing for people getting into the industry or a younger generation or career changes or whatever, it's to really get into the industry because you love it and you have a passion for it. So you can take you can take anyone with a passion and a passion to see how things work and and want to optimize it whether it's for efficiency or security or whatever it might be but that first that's first and foremost you know the most important thing in our industry it's like you know everybody that that i know and that works for us they just they love buildings they they love how they're put together, they love the systems, they, they, they love to watch them operate, they love to fix them. And so it's, a, it's all about really having a passion for, for systems. Your comment is sort of completely compatible with sort of an emerging pattern, which is your, your um, sort of focus area within uh, your cybersecurity nexus is around buildings. And there's cybersecurity in every in all these other amazing verticals. And so cybersecurity itself, land of opportunity as far as career paths. And then there's so many subspecialties. And so find one that you're passionate about. If it's robotics or drones, you know, or oil rigs, there's cybersecurity applications in all these yeah. in all these areas. And so it, it makes mm-hmm. sense. Like one, it's a it's a great career path for people who aren't in it yet. Lots to do. Anybody entering career, I mean, un- unlimited years ahead as far as career opportunity. And you can yeah. you tie it to a particular area that you might have certain you know passion on beyond cybersecurity, and it could be buildings, but it could be other things as well. It's just a it's a it's a huge land of opportunity. Yes, it is, and it's uh, and it's fully integrated with our day to day lives. We've seen over the over the years the impact the impact cybersecurity breaches for operational technology has disrupted our everyday life. You know, when you go to drive up to the gas pump and there's no gas, it's, uh, you know, as a result of a cybersecurity issue, it's like it's affecting every everyday life for every for everybody. And so it's uh, it's really close to it's close to society as a whole. And 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 it is a it is a big problem and um, and needs to needs to have attention more and more attention brought to it. I think that the other thing is too is that you know what well there are some foundational things as far as cybersecurity certifications etc that people can get. I see a lot of resumes and um, really it's not about it's not necessarily about the MBAs that you have or the, you know, the alphabet soup of letters that you have after your name for all the, all the certifications that you've taken. It's really about having a passion for anything from an operational standpoint that, that needs to be hardened and secured. You don't necessarily need to have an MBA to to be able to support that and advance our industry, you do have to have some of some of those um, high levels of education and certifications, etc. If you're building technology, or you're if you're involved in things like AI or the very um, I guess theoretic, theoretical aspect of it, but there's so much to do. Just the foundational field work to support securing our systems that any anyone with any level of desire can can contribute to our industry so there's another i think important nugget there which is you know correct me if if i'm interpreting what you said wrong but there there is there's opportunity for people who might have not have the formal education path of undergrad and graduate they might come from very practical ex-military or just in the field work 
and have the requisite building blocks to, to work in cybersecurity in this area based on what they've been doing uh, and, and sort of aptitudes they've grown, but not necessarily, you know, the educational path. Like you said, sometimes might require it, but there's probably more and more needs to be, I think, more and more openness in the industry to, to say, you know, you might not have to have a said degree. If you have some other experience, that can be quite valuable. And we've got a lot of jobs to fill. Yes, absolutely. That's 100% correct. And that, I think that bodes well for anybody who's listening who's like, oh, I don't have one of those degrees. Is there an opportunity for me? And the answer is yes. Not all corporations are ready to relax especially big ones, their hiring standards that this band requires this degree. But I know that's under pressure. We just say this, I got to fill this position and I can't fill it. And there's a person with amazing experience that doesn't have a college degree. Let's break that rule and hire that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, uh, some of some of those requirements are, are also required by um, contractual obligations, especially in some of the contracts that we have and with the government. And so so there is there's that balance and mix of, of what you need in order to in order to build a strong cyber team in the OT world. It takes it takes a lot of skill sets to be able to build a really strong cyber team. Uh, and so let's talk about the power of team and that role, uh, team, team play and working with others. We have a lot of dysfunction in our space, um, distrust between, you know, I hate always seeing a lot of IT you know, versus OT personnel. but but there's distrust and you're, you're going to mess up my system and uh, all these sorts of things. And we clearly need to get better communication and better trust building and hybrid teams. And what, what's been your experience of that sort of whole ball of wax? It's definitely getting better out there from a, from a standpoint of, you know, those two verticals um, talking to each other, the IT people and the facilities people or, or OT um, in general, um, not necessarily even in, in the facility side. But uh, one thing that I found was that people just really don't have an understanding of each other. And so when we were doing assessments in some existing buildings, right from the start, um, when we do introductory kickoff meetings with stakeholders, it, it it was really important to get all of those people in the same room together, and it it was a lot of fun because we we would have we would drag IT people out into the field um, and take them through buildings and through mechanical rooms and you know give them an overview of how systems work and and they were fascinated. You know, it was the first time that they had ever really seen you know the inner workings of buildings and and then we would have the facility managers in the room and they're they're like I, I just need to keep my systems running I have no idea you know anything about the network I know how to I know how to run my buildings and I know the systems but I really don't touch the network so so then when we would bring them all together and it was kind of interesting where that came together and typically typically where it came together was when when we were going to go and do um, scans of their systems and so we would need we would need the IT people in order to um, get to the point where they would allow us to actually connect anything to their network to scan their systems and then we would have the building people there because then when we started looking at it and grabbing information off the control systems and they, they would actually start seeing, you know, how we pulled the data and what we looked at. And then if we, if we found any vulnerabilities, you know, immediately upon, upon scans or, or what we were seeing, the IT people, they were thrilled. I mean, because there was a lot of things that they found where, you know, potentially it wouldn't be conforming to the, their standards. You know, there would be like rogue things somewhere that they didn't know about. And they're like, oh, wow, you found that? And they were on it immediately. And they were, they were fixing things as we went. And so, so they, got, they got a new, I guess, I, I, I think perspective is the wrong word, but a new perspective, right? Yeah. And when they saw that, that you know the building people could actually come in and show them things on their network that they really weren't aware of. And then on the flip side, when the facilities people started seeing how 
they could leverage some of the vulnerabilities that were in their buildings to, to um, get funding for upgrades or whatever it might be, right? Yeah. Um, you know, because a lot of times buildings don't get enough funding to barely even maintain their buildings. But then when you can tie some of the problems that they're having, you know, to cybersecurity and life safety issues, then it gives them more leverage to to get funding to start fixing their buildings. That's another gold nugget right there. That's an interesting uh, whole different justification for it's worth your time and effort to look into this. Uh, and here's a potential, you know, it's it's not the obvious one. We can make things more secure. That's sometimes hard to sell. But over, how about this? You can mm -hmm. you can you can get uh, the the sort of fundamental, um, you know, maybe some more support for your building and use this as the justification for that. That's pretty awesome. And the other part of what you shared, I think, is 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 equally important is is bringing people together and uh, in a, in a in a happy non confrontational way, like a, a dawning of awareness. So sort of sort of I listen to you, I think I can just see those light bulb going on, like oh wow. Mm -hmm. And, and so facilitating and creating that, more of us need to do that. Um, there's a call to action there, right? You create these opportunities for each person to share and learn and observe what the other party, you know, or other parties may bring to the table. Yeah, and it was so thrilling when, you know, we just started to do, do these assessments and go buildings to buildings. And then when the IT folks started getting on the bandwagon, it's like, okay, where are you guys going next? You know, what building are we going to go visit next? I mean, it was it was really great to see that they had, um, you know, that we had, you know, invoked some kind of excitement into their day, you know, when it came to supporting, um, you know, supporting the security related to the buildings. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So what excites you about the future? And I always like to sort of end with a looking around the corner, either for you or for Chinook or for just, you know, for maybe people entering the marketplace that, you know, you could segue if you, if you know, so like people should, they should take a look at this. Here's a land, here's an opportunity within our space. You know, what, what are you, what are you excited about personally and professionally? Well, I, I think that a lot of the cybersecurity related issues that we're exposing is also because because it's such a high number of devices and um, and a lot of vulnerabilities, it is really impossible to put boots on the ground to discover all of it. And frankly, we probably don't have all of that time to do that or the resources since the industry is, is short of resources already for the work that we're doing. There, there really isn't much option other than to continue to create technology that will support not only discovery of devices but continuous monitoring and ai and as as i said earlier our building industry is is has been so slow to adopt technology over the years and i think that it this is this is kind of breathing some new life into technology for buildings and and what we can do with technology. So I think that as we're going forward, there's gonna be some pretty exciting technology and integrations of technology over the entire life cycle of the building where, where all of the dollars that have been ingested into the development of cyber technology is going to benefit the entire facility's life cycle as a whole. So I'm I'm really excited about that about that piece of the of the technology and and in our existing building world it's uh we have such a we have controls that are all over the place right we have buildings that are so old and some yeah. have no controls in them and some still have pneumatics in them and then you know you can go onto a campus environment you see a building with no control you see a building with pneumatics you see a building with early you know, very early digital controls, and then you see something that's being built new, and it is smarter than you can even imagine. So it's really exciting to be able to have that entire spectrum to deal with from a control standpoint, and try and and try and continue to pull it together into making buildings better and making sure that systems continue to work and evolve. And so it's a, it's, it's really exciting both on 
on the system level and in the field and also on the technology side. Awesome. Well, uh, Wanda, we've, we've reached my uh, favorite part of these conversations where I get to steal something from a, a favorite show, the Inside the Actors Studio that ran, uh, I think it may still run, but the longtime host, James Lipton, has passed. Uh, but I watched episodes. It's syndicated in, oh, I think, 150 countries and ran for many decades with him as the host. And he interviewed all these famous actors and actresses on the, his uh, stage at, at the um, Actors Studio of the, the university in, uh, uh, in, in New York. And he he borrowed this questionnaire that he finished every interview with uh, from a French show. So I think this goes back. It could be 50 years or more uh, that it's been in use. And so I use it exactly word for word. The Pavot questionnaire is what it's called. And so if you're up for it, we'll finish uh, our time together with that questionnaire. All right. Let's go for it. All right. What is your favorite word? Uh, my favorite word would be perfect. Every time I see a solution to something and or somebody brings me a solution, you know, I, it, you know, I always like to, uh, I always like to say, perfect, let's move forward. <laughs> what is your least favorite word? My least favorite word is stupid. I, I don't think that that word should even be in our dictionary. I think it is like the most degrading word in the English language. <laughs> what turns you on, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, I'm kind of a creature of nature. I like to I like to get out into nature and it sparks all of that creativity, spirituality, and, and emotion. What turns you off? I don't like it when people are sad. When I see uh, when I see sadness, um, I just um, it it makes it really hard for um, for me to bring creativity or spirituality. I just uh, I don't I don't like seeing sadness. And what is your favorite curse word or abbreviation? I think it would be have to be the the F word, probably with a capital F. <laughs> The good old F-bomb, it's pretty. It's the most popular response to the question. Um, yeah. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Uh, I think the most medicinal sound that there is for me is the sound of the ocean. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, the vacuum cleaner. What profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? Well, I, uh, I started it when I was little and drawing and painting and I just kind of got myself back into it and so i think you know my my next career i'll i'll probably be the crazy artist <laughs> and what profession would you not like to do um i coming from where i'm from you know in a small town and on a farm there wasn't a whole lot of politics and so i don't think that i could ever be a politician and if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you arrive at the pearly gates well, I tend to, um, anybody who knows me well, I tend to, they either know that I'm either on time or a couple of minutes late. And so I think that um, God would probably say to me, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Wanda Lankwich, founder and president of Chinook Systems. Uh, thank you for spending time with us today and for being a CSA fellow and for being part of uh, CSA and I, I met you, like I said earlier, years ago at a CSA event in DC when it was much, much earlier than where it is today. And um, you were enthusiastic about it then, and you sponsored some DC events. And so you're you're sort of one of the one of the longer term uh, enthusiasts and supporters for what we're doing today. So I always have to point that out because that's not not everybody. That's a smaller group of people. And today we look much bigger than we are. Uh, and thank you for securing our you know some critical uh, national infrastructure that's uh, you know that is really important to, to, to how parts of our government work. So thank you for all that and, and being here today with me. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you do for our industry. I know that in the DC chapter, I was involved early on in CSA and um, with Mike Chipley and Daryl Hagley. And we were kind of the first ones to stand up the, the DC chapter. And, and I think it's grown significantly, but um, but it was just such a great environment to bring people from all over into a room to have, you know, some chicken wings and a beer and talk about cyber and where cyber is going. And, and it was, it was just a really, really great venue, I guess, for, for people to come out to. And 
So thank you very much for launching that. And think that it's been fantastic to now bring people from all over the world to CSE, and it's just um, the the people that you have within the organization and the folks that are within the chapters are are truly leaders in our industry, and and it's wonderful to be able to have a network like you've put together. So thank you very much for everything that you're doing and continue to do. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you to say. It's uh, it's an accidental thing. I've I've built so many purpose-built businesses with business plans and strategies and what we're going to do. This was not one of them. This just happened, and it just kept screaming every year. This is working. People want it. People are you know getting what they need from it. Let's do more of it. And uh, it's uh, today it's it's consuming most of my professional time, and I, I I'm. I love it. So I thank you for for sharing your comments. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and. Um, it was a lot of fun. Oh, good, good, good. Well, I can't wait uh, uh, to to share this, uh, to share your story, and get this uh, on on air. By, by the time somebody hears this, it is on air. So um, uh, that'll probably be the next couple months. Thank you, Wanda. Take care, be well, and uh, I'll uh, I'll see you soon. All right. Thanks so much, Derek.